This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and I want to thank you all for joining us again today. Remember now, you can find all the Ringler Radio shows at ringlerassociates.com or at thelegaltalknetwork.com. Well, today we have a quite uh, comprehensive subject. I want to get right to it. Our topic is a, a really a hot one. In fact, uh, I think it's about as hot as any in the workers' comp claim settlement arena, and that's the Medicare Secondary Payer Statute. And that's become an essential aspect of settling workers' compensation cases nationwide. Well, the reason uh, Medicare set-asides and compliance with the MSP have become such a hot topic is that in addition to the broad applicability there, there's been a wide range of approaches and interpretations, and we've all seen it. Needless to say, it's become a confusing area of workers' compensation settlement practice, and hopefully today we have two great guests who are going to help clear it up. Uh, first, let me introduce and welcome Ken Parity. Ken is the CEO of Crow Parity Services Corp., a national Medicare compliance company based in the Boston area. Crow Parity handles Medicare issues for a number of the nation's leading carriers, third-party administrators, and self-insureds. And as an attorney and entrepreneur with businesses in the SSDI, Second Injury Fund, and Workers' Compensation Subrogation Marketplace, Ken also brings some general context to the discussion. Welcome, Ken. Thank you very much, Larry. Well, also joining us today is Rob Lewis. Rob uh, is the chief legal officer at Crow Parity, and he's been involved in the MSA industry since 2001. He's published a number of articles on Medicare compliance and is a nationally recognized speaker on the topic. He's also the current president for the National Alliance of Medicare Set-Aside Professionals. That sounds pretty impressive, Rob. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks a bunch for having us on. Well, you know, we've done several programs here on Ringer Radio on Medicare set-asides, and we keep getting asked to do more. Uh, That speaks to the impact on workers' compensation claims. But uh, let's talk about uh, the folks that are joining us for the first time. Can give us a, a background on what this is all about. Sure. Uh, originally, this was enacted in 1981. Uh, the Medicare Secondary Payer Statute is designed to do something pretty simple: is to avoid uh, shifting the burden of responsibility from a primary payer like a carrier, a TPA, or a self-insured to the Medicare Trust Fund. You know, the statute was on the books for a long time. It was never really enforced. And then a study uh, discovered that about $40 billion had been lost over a seven-year period, and that got a lot of people's attention. That's uh, tough to lose, $40 billion, isn't it? <laughs> it's a lot of money. Um, wow. And, you know, really the primary thing that was happening here is uh, folks were settling their workers' compensation claims. Uh, they had a, a second avenue of relief through SSDI and Medicare. And when they were settling that claim, they were basically shifting all the liability and all the future medical expenses onto the Medicare Trust Fund. And really everything that was done and everything that they're attempting to do at Medicare is to avoid this happening. Well, it was the, the old story of the claimant taking the settlement, putting it in his pocket, and then sending their bills into Medicare and letting the government take care of it. Exactly. And they're really hurting all the taxpayers in the, in, in, in the, in the balance. Exactly. It's kind of like cheating on your taxes, isn't it? Uh, one might say so, <laughs> yes. Well, now that the study, uh, when the study was released and, and, and these changes started to get made, uh, 
what what happened? How did the government respond to this uh, this problem of uh, losing all these funds? Well, they did a, a number of things. Uh, the first thing that they did was they uh, essentially issued nine policy memoranda and, and, and did everything they could to try to find a, a mechanism so they would permit settlements to actually occur, not impede them at all, but make sure that they were getting their money back into the system. Uh, so, again, there were these, these, these nine uh, policy memoranda and— now That sounds bureaucratic as, as yes, heck, huh? and it's been difficult. Um, I, I don't think by design by any means, but uh, there's been a lot of interpretation and— you know, an entire new industry has sort of cropped up in, in different interpretations on how to handle it. Hmm. Well, you know, wh- one of the things that we hear all the time in terms of complaints in, in the industry is because of all these approaches and because of the different uh, uh, reaction times of these various CMS, uh, you know, offices, it takes just a ton of time to get approval. Uh, what's happening there? There's a lot of confusion on that issue. What's, uh, what's the problem? How big is it? And how is it going to be solved? Well, I think it was a, a bigger problem historically than it is currently. I think uh, there's been some variation from region to region. You know, each of the regional offices handles the claims that arise from the, the comp statutes in those jurisdictions. Um, but at this point in time, they've done a lot to to increase their response time. They're down to three to four months generally. Um, you know, so it, it's an area that if your MSA vendor is doing their job in turning their part of it around quickly and has built a good relationship and, and has done what they need to do in submitting them, um, they're getting pretty good response time at this point. Well, let's talk about uh, when to submit this uh, MSA for the CMS approval. I mean, this whole getting this process begun so that they can respond in a timely fashion, the claim person sitting there has to recognize which cases need that MSA. And, and, right. and what, what, what are some of the criteria that they have to deal with? Well, there's, there's basically two criteria that you need to look at, Larry. The first one is if you have a claimant who is a Medicare recipient at the time of settlement and you're settling the claim for $25,000 or more, Medicare has indicated that they want to review and approve those claims. The second area that Medicare is looking at is anytime you've got a claimant who is not a Medicare recipient but they have a reasonable expectation of Medicare eligibility within 30 months of the settlement date, in those cases, if you're settling for $250,000 or more, Medicare wants to review those claims. Now, it's interesting. Medicare, in their infinite wisdom, also indicated that these are only workload review thresholds. And then they went on and said that every settlement must consider and protect Medicare's interest. Right. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. What, uh, when you say 250000 for the person not currently on Medicare, uh, does that involve the entirety of the case, including the, the attorney fees and the whole shebang, or is it just simply a portion of the case? That it's a great with? question, and, and it's actually the entire settlement amount includes counsel fees as well as any previously settled portion of the claim. So, for example, if you settled indemnity benefits three years ago for $200,000, and now you're settling out future meds for 100000 that's a $300,000 settlement in Medicare's eyes. Okay, and they want, they want to be uh, taken into account. Absolutely. They also case. factor in conditional payments, which is something we'll talk about a little later, which is any liens that Medicare may have uh, for payments that they've made. That's factored into the settlement amount as well. And, and just to be clear, this quote-unquote reasonable expectation of Medicare eligibility in 30 months, I mean, that's somewhat subjective. How is that being treated as you see it uh, from day to day? The way we tend to read it, and I think it's the best way to do it, is um, you know they give some criteria in the policy memorandum, but essentially it boils down to if someone is in the SSDI system and kicking around, uh, whether they're on appeal or um, you know whether or not uh, you know they've 
they've made a case and they're they're waiting for more information. Also, um, if somebody is over um, the sixty-two and a half year mark, then they're 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 within a certain amount of time to get, uh, to have Medicare eligibility. They, they probably want you to err on the side of yes. of, of Medicare and MSAs than than not. Exactly. Right. Okay. Well. You talked uh, a little bit about those cases of we call them Medicare, on Medicare with $25,000 thresholds, almost on Medicare with $250,000 thresholds. What other cases? Those are like two types. What other types of cases are they dealing with at all in in this realm? Well, Larry, that's exactly what we are saying where Medicare came out and said that these are only workload review thresholds and Medicare's interest must be considered on every settlement. And the problem that that raised is that it was subject to interpretation. And many of the vendors and, and the, the people who, who, who are involved in this industry sort of took some different approaches there. And one approach was, well, <clears throat> if you read the, the language from their memo, you should do a Medicare set-aside arrangement on every single file. And from my perspective and, and from our approach, that, that's really the wrong way to go. Um, you know, we always say, well, what about the guy who's 24 years of age, he sprains his knee, he's 40 years away from the Medicare program, he's back to work, there are no complications. Why would you ever do a Medicare set-aside in a situation like that? Um, <clears throat> so we really feel, and you've got to look at these cases on a case-by-case basis, uh, because while we don't believe a Medicare set-aside should be done in that situation, you also have cases where you may have someone who's 67, they're on Medicare, and you're selling it for $24,000 or just you know $1,000 below the threshold that they've given you. And in that situation, there is they are on Medicare, so you may need to do something to consider their interest. Well, who if a claim person is looking at a file? Let's take your first example, where the twenty-four-year-old uh, with a two-thousand-dollar you know knee sprain case. Who who, who would it be that would be even suggesting an MSA in a case like that? How does that how does that even come up? Is that a vendor coming in and saying you should do them on all cases? Is that how it works, or is it well, or is it claim policy in certain companies that you're seeing? I think it's always a tough thing. The adjuster is kind of in a place where they're not really sure what to do. They they get different information from vendors and different folks they talk to. And I think really it is a question of, you know, do you look at this problem and say, I can't submit this to Medicare, um, you know, uh, but I do know that I'm supposed to protect their interest. Where do I draw the line? So, you know, we did something where we developed a framework where we did scoring system based on these different, you know, basically on what would uh, trigger SSDI benefits because that's really the way that most of these folks are going to get on Medicare. And to do exactly what, what Rob was saying on a case-by-case basis to figure out how it is we're going to determine where that line is going to be. And scoring is one way to do it. Uh, I don't think that's the only way to do it. None of that's been sanctioned by CMS. But in the absence of having guidance from them, I think it's at least a rationale that would defend any situation where if you decided not to submit it or decided not to do an MSA, you'd have a reason for why you did that. And way. would something be in the claim file that would be explaining that? So yeah. the claim person would have something to fall back on. Exactly. I think that's the key is that your file is, is documented as to the rationale you use, because again, it's a good faith basis for uh, taking their interest into account, not perfection. And, and just well, to, yeah, to jump ahead. in on that, I, I think that's an issue that that really the carriers need to address. Um, Protocol should be in place so that it's not a decision that's left at the adjuster level to you know be swayed one way or the other. There should be some something in place where the carriers have a basis to decide which way they're going to go. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me that. that uh, in most instances, you'd like to have something in the file to explain the fact that you considered it and, and for these reasons decided against it. And at least that'll put you in some stead with, MS, with and it, CMS. And if you can also show that you, as an organization, as Rob is saying, had an overall policy, yeah. in addition to that case-by-case 
uh, protection, you've also kind of have that overall rationale. Well, you know, these this whole analysis that that's done, it's just simply more than a medical forecast. I mean, this kind of begs the question, who should be handling MSAs for the claim people? Uh, and I know there are a lot of vendors out there, but what is it that uh, you think is important in that whole process? I think a lot of different folks have approached this differently. Our, our feeling about it is that you really have this um, need to have both the, uh, a nurse and a lawyer on each of these files. Uh, there's an awful lot of issue spotting, an awful lot of um, cost mitigation opportunities, an awful lot of things that, um, um, you know, the creativity of a lawyer and a nurse and their experience in the areas that they practice in, you, can't, you really can't find another way to address. It's, it's something we think is it's key to what we do, um, and we think that it's, it's an important aspect of this. And it's really a negotiation at times with CMS, isn't it? I mean, Yeah, I think, I think that's an important point, too. The other part of having uh, nurses with experience in comp and, and, and lawyers um, who are advocates is that you do approach CMS with an advocate's position. And it's not haggling for the sake of haggling, but, you know, there is the, the danger of overcompliance. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks who talk about 100% first blush compliance with CMS, you have to wonder about whether or not they've actually taken that advocate's approach and, and, and tried, uh, on the first attempt at least, to get a number that's a real compliance number, not an overcompliance number. And just to jump in on that, Larry, we, when, a lot of times we've had a lot of success arguing with Medicare on state law issues. For example, um, in New Jersey, there is a, a statute that provides that a carrier can make payment without prejudice while they're investigating a claim. There's no admission of liability there. But Medicare took a position that if a carrier made any payments, then that's an admission of liability. Uh, so we were able to go to them with legal arguments, statute, case law, and prove our point that they're bound by the state law of jurisdiction. Uh, there is no federal workers' comp statute. So Medicare is still bound by the laws of the state of the jurisdiction at issue, and those laws should not be overlooked. And that just adds to the complexity, I'm sure. But uh, I like uh, what you said, Ken, about haggling. That's always fun to do. That's, that's a good <laughs> exactly. Thing. What, uh, Rob, let's talk about uh, this approval process again. I mean, this seems to be one of the key elements of uh, driving a lot of these claim people crazy. Uh, they think they have a case settled, and they submit to CMS, and they've got to wait. And I, I know you said something about things are improving. Uh, give us uh, some insight there. Yeah, back when the industry first started, um, it was – not uncommon at all to have claims you know, pending with Medicare for a year. Um, and, and now we're down to about a three-month wait period is typically what the average return is. So it's obviously gotten a lot better, certainly still room for improvement. Um, you know, I think if you could get this done in 30 to 45 days, I don't think there would be concern. I don't think the industry would, would be in an uproar. Um, but part of that also begs the question, as the delay is often caused by the parties. One of the worst things that can happen, and we hear this all the time, parties have a claim pending for a year and a half, two years. They get to mediation. They get to settlement discussions. And it's at that point when they reach an agreement that somebody sitting around the table says, oh, this guy's on Medicare. And now you've got to go and start the whole process. And all that could have, a lot of that could have been done earlier, which would have moved things along much quicker. And Larry, if I, if I may, the other part of this process we didn't really talk about is that really when you're talking about Medicare secondary payer compliance, there's the past and the future. There's, there's setting this money aside for the, the you know, forecasting the future medicals. But there's also dealing with the, um, these what they call conditional payments or liens that Medicare has. And this is also one of the reasons why things get stopped up in the system because that's an issue that needs to be addressed uh, earlier 
than a lot of folks do because, you know, getting a future medical forecast is a matter of having a lawyer and nurse spend some time reviewing the file. But sometimes getting these conditional payments and that information takes some time to find out and also negotiate um, if you find that that number doesn't seem to make sense or there's a reason to believe that that lien might be, you know, for the wrong person or for the wrong treatment. It also sounds like uh, there's an audit aspect to this. Uh, Medicare may have double billed along the way, and, and there needs to be some opportunity or ability to go back and ferret out some of that jazz before the case is actually resolved. How does that happen? Well, th- that's exactly right. You know, the, the carrier, it, if it's deemed the primary payer, is only responsible for that which they would have been responsible for under the workers' comp statute. So if you've got a situation, and we see this all the time, where um, either there's treatment that was unauthorized, so if the carrier is directing treatment and the claimant elects to go out on their own and treat with their own doctor, state law in many states will say that the carrier is not responsible for paying that. So those are liens that we can have removed from the conditional payment claim. Additionally, if there's double billing, the provider may have billed Medicare and also billed the carrier, well, the carrier shouldn't have to pay again to satisfy the conditional payment claim. It just doesn't make sense. Um, And oftentimes we find conditions that Medicare wants reimbursement for that aren't even a part of the claim. So, for example, you you may have a case where it's a back injury. It's a compensable back claim. And while they're treating for their back, they end up with a heart condition. And those heart condition treatments show up on your CPT codes. Well, you need to get those removed. Um, And that's something that, again, the earlier you start that process, the better because you can then try to get those things removed prior to the date of settlement. And, you know, that also speaks to why a nurse and a lawyer are very important, because in that process you've got – you're taking CPT codes and turning them into arguments um, yeah. as to why things don't apply. And so having both those disciplines, and you know, inform your approach really helps a lot. That's good. And you can go back and haggle some more. It, like yeah, that. always about haggling. There you go. Uh, well, listen, let's take a short break, and we'll come back uh, with some more discussion. I want to really get into the concept of – what are some of the criteria used to really choose uh, a, an MSA vendor? And uh, and then we'll talk about how structured settlements really uh, dovetail with uh, the MSA approach. Okay, so we'll be right back with Ringler Radio in a minute. This is Ringler Radio, Internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975... Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including all states. American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. 
That's CLEcenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. We're talking about compliance with the Medicare secondary payer rules with Ken Parody and Rob Lewis from Crow Parody in Danvers, Massachusetts. Uh, you know, for the audience, guys, and at the risk of sounding self-serving, uh, why don't you t- give us uh, uh, some tips on what to look for in an MSA vendor? Well, I think it's a, a really good question for the audience to, to consider some, some questions, um, things that you should look for, things that you should know about. If you're, if you're analyzing which vendor to go with, questions that you may want to ask them. Um, first one that comes to my mind is turnaround time. How long does it take for that vendor to turn around a Medicare set-aside arrangement? Um, I know some vendors, it, it may take weeks to get it back. Uh, others can turn it around in, in 10, 14 days. What are some of the issues that impact that turnaround time? Well, you know, quite honestly, there's a lot of medical records that need to be reviewed. Um, it's consulting with the, the attorneys involved in the case. It's, it's reviewing the, the, the treatment, the prescription drugs, all of those things. They can take time. So it's important to, to know what that time frame is beforehand. Well, you know, one of the problems, and, and we face it as structured settlement brokers when we get involved in cases, uh, where we sometimes become the catalyst for suggesting the MSA. Uh, and typically it's at the, as you mentioned before, the end game is coming, and it's a rush, rush, rush time frame. Uh, what about charges for the rush time frame versus the normal time frame? Do you guys, as an example, charge for uh, if it's a rush, you need it in you know several days rather than weeks? We don't. Um, that's one of the, the things that we offer people is we, you know, no rush service. Uh, that's usually with a, a little asterisk that says we can't make every single referral a rush. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, we do that because a lot of times there are people who they just need to get that, that case done quickly. For, you, we I'll do, for you, I'll do it overnight. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> and, and who takes responsibility for getting the documents? Uh, well, that's, that's another important question. Um, is it going to be the adjuster who, who has the burden of going through the file and reviewing it and, and pulling out the documents? Uh, or is your vendor going to go and show up and, and make copies of the file? How are you going to work that? And, again, it's something that needs to be discussed. If you're an attorney, it's not so much of an issue because you're going to have all the claim materials right there. But a lot of times it's a big issue for the carriers. Yeah, very much so. What about uh, you know the whole concept of the approval we talked about before? How does the uh, vendor help in getting approval? Well, again, I think this this sort of falls on the relationship that the vendor has with CMS. Uh, do they have a good working relationship? What is their typical time frame for, for approvals? Um, and, you know, again, I, I mean, we said three months is sort of on, on average. You might want to check with the vendors that you're, you're looking at and find out what their turnaround time is typically. Interesting. The, and what about approval rates and approval success rates? Again, as I, as I was mentioning before, I think it's um, if you make the decision that you want somebody who's advocating for you, somebody who's bragging about 100% compliance every time, first blush, first approach, maybe there's a question, a follow-up question for you, which is, you know, you know, how are you handling that? How, why is that happening? And normally negotiations when somebody works, uh, walks away happy 100% of the time, maybe there's something that's missing in the process. Okay. Address some of the other issues that a claim person I'm thinking of now sitting at a desk with a file. They've got a series of vendors that they can choose from. What are some of those questions that they would want to ask other than the ones we've just talked about? I think one of the other ones that's really important is, uh, you know, we talked about the time crunch issue and is also, you know, that's generally the case for the adjuster. So, you know, I think one of the things that's important to find out is who's going to be my contact? Who am I going to be talking to on a day-to-day basis? Is there one person that I'm going to be in touch with? 
And, and, and I think in follow-up with that, Ken, is also, is there somebody that I can reach out to who is an expert, who has the knowledge from the legal basis that I can ask legal right. questions at, with respect to the settlement terms? Is there also a nurse that I can get on the phone who can talk me through some of these questions? Because they get a number, what do they do with it? You know, how has that number come up with? So you, you may want to be able to reach out and talk to a nurse, talk to a lawyer to get answers to the questions that they may have when they're res- resolving the claim. That kind of dovetails back too with the idea of what what kind of thing what kind of document do I get? I think one instructive way to approach this is to see a sample. You know what what does your document look like? Is there a lot of explanation about all those issues that we just addressed that you know obviate the need to make that call? Um, if you have that call person to call, but also the the documents address it well, that's probably a good point of comparison. And I'm sure a lot of uh, people are concerned about. You know, how do you stand behind the work product you've you've created? Because uh, you know, hopefully, the work product you've created is is is, is proper and appropriate and correct. Uh, tell me how that works. Well, again, I think that's something that each vendor is a little bit different in in what they offer. Uh, we approach it from you know the law firm mentality where we we gave legal opinion letters. So from our practice, what we do is we will give a legal opinion letter uh, that that stands behind our product. Uh, we feel very strongly about our number. We feel very strongly about our opinions. And we'll stand in front of that to make sure it holds up. And I would assume other vendors should have the similar kind of a process, or if they don't, they you know the claim person should know that. It's something to certainly use as a point of comparison. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's that's good stuff. Any other points on this uh, topic? For me, the big one is conditional payments. Mm-hmm. So much of the industry is focused on the allocation for future medicals, the MSA, and MSA vendors, and and everything's about MSA. But the conditional payments for me are a much bigger issue. The, the liens that Medicare has for any payments that they've made pre-settlement are, are a much stickier issue. They're hard to negotiate. They can come back and bite you down the road. There's case law. There's statute that supports Medicare's position for recovery. And it's one of those things where a lot of vendors will call in the claim, report it, and get a number, and that's the end of the line. And from our perspective, that's the start of the process. You then need to look at that number. You need to investigate it. You need to find out if it's related to the claim. You need to negotiate with them, try and th- get things off of there where they may not be related. And ultimately what that does is it helps preserve settlement dollars. So if we can take a $100,000 conditional payment claim and knock it down to 15000 it either puts more money in the claimant's pocket or it's less money that a carrier is going to have to pay out. So at to us, that's a really big issue that's that's often mislooked or, or you know overlooked overlooked by the yeah. by the uh, the other vendors. That's a that's a very good point. Go ahead, Ken. I, I was just going to say that there's a couple other issues that dovetail really well into that, which is you know you can do this great job with uh, doing your future uh, MSA and looking at the future medical exposure, um, but if you don't tie it well into the into the actual settlement and on complex cases, kind of look at you know professional administration, structured settlements, and and have a combined strategy. I think that, that you can fall short in taking that good work and turning it into a good settlement. And I think that's the key here that, that uh, you know, one of the reasons and, and probably something that's of interest to your, to your audience is, you know, how are these people going to relate to a structured settlement company? How do they think about that? And what strategies emerge as a result of that? And then once that sort of, um, you know, strategy is put together, how is it actually executed with the documents? And, and what does the work product look like at the end? Hmm. Absolutely. I think those are all critical issues. I want to explore a little bit more of that structured settlement component in a second. But getting back just to the, the elements and the questions about uh, how to pick and choose a, a vendor and, and some of those issues, I thought those, those were very important points. 
And I'd recommend our audience, uh, you know, play this portion back and take some notes <laughs> because I think that's, uh, that's half the battle in getting anything done. Well, let's talk about the structured settlement uh, aspect of, of these MSAs. One of the, one of the beauties of, of funding these MSAs and, and what's cost-effective is that you're able to take a, stru- a structured settlement annuity and uh, fund, you know, the payout of that, what that MSA is supposed to be. And uh, it's, it saves a lot of money, and it's really a very effective way to do it. Give us your experience in, in that. Well, we come from the, the background that, that this is really a multidisciplinary team approach. You need lawyers, you need nurses, you need structured settlement brokers, you need professional administrators. And you need all those players as experts to come together to settle those really complex claims. And so often, you can save so much money by structuring a Medicare set-aside arrangement. And what we like to do a lot of times is we'll work directly with a broker, a structured settlement broker, and we'll help, you know, get this whole thing tied up. And a lot of times we've found that the adjusters usually, they may shy away from it because they think it complicates things. But once you show them the numbers and show them that, hey, not only does it make it easier, but you actually save a bunch of money. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and by the way, we'll, we'll captain that process for you or, you know, your MSA vendor will kind of take care of that process for you too because I think it's, it's not just being worried about it, it's sort of a time constraint issue once again. Can I, can I pull all these people together and make this effective? Is that what you guys mean when you talk about professional administration of the process? How does that, how does that work? How, how, get, define professional administration of the process versus what we're, we've talked about so far. Yeah, absolutely. The professional administration talks about the money after you've funded it. Is the money going to be administered by the claimant directly or self-administered, or are you going to have somebody administer it for them, which would be a professional administrator? And the idea behind a professional administrator is they'll do the yearly accountings to Medicare to show the proper depletion of the funds and so forth. So it's, it's another piece of the puzzle. It's not used very often. Uh, I think statistics show that about 97% of the cases are all self-administered. But on larger claims, it makes sense to have a professional administrator. And there's also certain cases where you're required to have a, a professional administrator involved. So it is something that you need in your toolbox in order to pull out to help get some of these cases resolved. And I would assume m- most of the big vendors do have these professional administration departments and uh, trust departments that help that process, as you do. Yes, exactly. That's, that's good. Uh, well, let's talk about legislative movements going on right now. What's what's happening out there? It's it seems to be a uh, every time you turn around, Congress is doing something with <laughs> with whatever we we're tweaking laws all the time. What's happening around this whole area, positive and negative? Well, many of the listeners will know that that there was legislation that was H.R. 5309 was put through. uh, It it went into Congress last year. It really, it died, basically died on the vine. Um, What happened since then, we've got new legislation that just actually was enacted last week, or not enacted, but put through last week. Um, And this is is called H.R. 2549. And the idea behind this is it's, it's designed to help reform the Medicare secondary payer statute to improve the process, uh, to provide for appellate rights, to challenge the, the uh, decisions by CMS, and to expedite the, the review of these claims. So the idea behind it is uh, it's good and, and certainly would help the industry as a whole to get these cases moved through quicker. Who knows where it goes? Uh, it just, just was introduced, and we'll see where, where it ends up, and we're certainly going to keep our eye on it and follow it. But you're encouraged by, by what's in that legislation? Yeah, I mean, uh, the idea of, of improving this process is a good one, so certainly. Well, you know, the only thing is with all legislation, you know, there's usually some good things and some bad things. Um, 
you know, I, I think uh, people come down in different areas on that. I mean, I think the general attempt, though, to clarify and to do something um, that's a little more um, streamlined and a little more um, available to folks is always a good thing to do as long as you don't, you know, upset the good things along the way. Is anything in that leg- legislation uh, talking, did they talk at all about the liability cases, or is it simply still the workers' comp arena that we're really involved with here? My understanding now is still limited to workers' comp. You know, one of the things that uh, I had a case uh, in Nebraska where there was a comp component, there was a, it was a comp case for a while, and of course there was a big third-party case, and the comp was settled out, and now we were settling the third-party case. And one of the lawyers said we didn't need a, uh, an MSA because we're just talking the liability aspect now. And someone else had the opinion, well, there was a comp component in the past, and, and, and even though the comp is now being cut off, uh, we need to do that. What's, what's your opinion on that, and how, how, how do people go about solving those kinds of dilemmas that they, that they run between lawyers? It's a great question, and it's one that, that I think when it gets really complicated like that, it's when you need to bring in someone who understands these issues and the complexities and, and can help tie it all together. I guess obviously I couldn't help. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. We found um, the one point to, to, to the, the, uh, the case that you're talking about, you've got both a comp and a liability component there. And Medicare has been clear in the fact that if there's a combo of work comp and liability, you still need to consider and protect Medicare's interest. The, the question, the true question out there that's on everybody's mind is what about pure liability claims? And that's the one where you know, there's really no solid answer. There's no case law. There's no statute that will that, tell you that you have to do a Medicare set-aside arrangement on those cases. There's no CMS policy memo as there are in workers' comp claims. So there's a lot of, of, of different approaches out there, and it's one where I think people need to just be very careful to ensure that they're not shifting a burden over to the Medicare program. And, and there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Interesting. Anything else, Ken? Uh, you know, the only thing I would add maybe is that you know, informally, uh, it seems like when we're looking at cases that are over a million dollars, it's probably good to take a second look. Again, as Rob said, there's nothing formal to, to, to give us any guidance there, but it does seem that um, you know, not only are they thinking about those cases at CMS, but they will review them and take a look at them when they're, when they're at that amount. Um, it, it seems to be something they're thinking about and, you know, everyone has heard the footsteps that this might be coming, and they're probably testing the waters and, and learning from the process of doing some of them informally. And, and the one area that, that there is no question about on liability claims is the issue of conditional payments that I talked about as well with COMP. Any liens that Medicare has in the liability arena are also reimbursable. And failure to take care of that prior to settlement or at the time of settlement is still a liability for the carrier. So they've, you've got to address the conditional payment claims. Mm-hmm. And, and don't you find that, that most claim departments, most claim uh, you know, adjusters and reps deal with that uh, Medicare lien issue? They try to resolve it or try to uh, compromise it in some way? Or do you find that a lot of times they're just paying off the lien? Well, you know, it's, it's, in liability, it's typically the plaintiff's attorney who's going out and getting the information. Uh, they're, they've been a little bit savvier than comp lawyers. Because what, what happens is if you get the lien amount from Medicare and you can show the medical bills, it's a, it's a damage that you can put on the board to help boost the value of your settlement. Right. So they've been a bit more savvy about it. But what we have found is that a lot of times the letter for reimbursement goes to the carrier. And the carrier gets that letter. It's, it's sort of like the IRS sending you a letter. And you see it and you just want to cut a check and make it go away. <laughs> 
not right. necessarily the right approach because if we can go through that and, and reduce it dramatically or even eliminate it in some situations, there's, there's appeal rights that you've got, waiver, waiver rights, and if we can eliminate that, it's money that's saved to the carrier or, again, money that goes into the claimant's pocket. Exactly. Well, we've seen many, many times how the plaintiff attorney builds a big case against the defense and uh, talks about how bad things are and then uh, turns right around to the lien holder and tells him he's going to lose the case. So they, they should take a lot less. You know, and that really, that really points out an important aspect of all this, which is that you know, um, because you're really indemnifying the, uh, the Medicare trust fund, this is a unique situation where claimant's counsel – Defense counsel, the carrier, all have a you know, and, and the and the claimant themselves all have a very similar interest in making sure. You know, I talked about not over complying, making sure that number is a fair number, but not too large of a number. Usually, as you're talking about, you know, one side has a has a very good reason to make that number bigger than the other side, and and so so it is a unique situation where everyone can work pretty well together. Well. I want to tell you, this has been a very interesting show, and I'm glad uh, we had your input. Uh, you know, you're obviously experts in your field, and I want to thank both of you for being with us. If somebody in the audience wanted to reach either of you or learn more about, uh, you know, Crow Parody, how would they reach you? The best way to reach us is our toll-free number, 866-630-2772, um, and we're available anytime. What about a website? Uh, it's www.cpscmsa.com. Well, those are a lot of letters, but I think people can figure that out. They'll listen hard. Well, listen, I want to thank everyone for listening again. And remember, Ringler Radio is here continuing to provide, you know, all the information you need in a very evolving and complex settlement industry. And I don't have to tell you that this show was a great example of that. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I know it's very informative, and I really did. So I want all of you now to go out and have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. 